0: G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane. I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. For the coming five weeks, we're going to delve back into the dim and distant uh, past, the life of Abraham um, over the past three years now. This is the third year that we'll be doing that, um, looking at... Uh, Uh, at his life and we're going to finish it off this year. Um, If I had to summarise the one story of the whole Bible, the one story of the entire Bible in a single sentence or a single phrase, it'd be this, the Kingdom of God, namely in God's people, in God's place, under God's rule. The Kingdom of God, God's people, in God's place, under God's rule but it's in the life of Abraham that you really see that taking shape in a big way, like kind of for the first, you know, in, in terms of all of the pieces coming together, you really start to see it through the life um, of Abraham. Uh, and here's where we come to today though, there, there are thousands of years between Abraham and Jesus and another couple of thousand years between Jesus um, and us and yet the challenges of God's people for us today are so similar time and again To the people back in the time of of Abraham, um, God's people in God's place under God's rule um, way back then. Um, Shall we pray together as we come to God's Word? Our great God in heaven, as we come to your Word and to dwell on it some more now, uh, we pray for ourselves just as Paul did for the Ephesians. Um, We keep asking God that you would give us your spirit that we may know you better. We pray that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened so that we'd know the hope to which you've called us, so that we'd know the riches of your glorious inheritance that you have prepared for us, so that we'd know your incomparably great power for us who believe. Father, we we pray that we'd grow in our knowledge this morning, but we pray that it wouldn't just be knowledge in our heads, but it would be lived out as well. And so we ask for your mighty spirit to work amongst us even now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please forgive me and set me free. I don't know how many times I've prayed that prayer. It must be in the hundreds. Uh, This is Tim Chester from his, his marvellous little book, You Can Change, excellent read. Father, here I am again, confessing the same sin to you again. Every time, says Chester, every time I have to remind myself of God's merciful character and His Gospel promises, I am forgiven but I also really want to change. Have you, he asks, have you ever despaired of changing? Do you think that you're a lost cause? Maybe you think it's different for you. Other people can change, but your history or temptations or problems make it different for you. Folks, this morning, I want to talk about the fear of the Lord in the face of the impossible. The fear of the Lord in the face of the impossible. Chester, um, he shares the story in that little book of men with habitually savage temper or with a porn addiction or with an insatiable need to be needed and so they serve but out of this kind of desire to manipulate so that they can feel whole. He tells the story of a woman whose shopping is her happy place, that is her haven in life and yet it drives her family into this financially precarious situation, and yet she does it again and again and again. Of another lady who is so diligent at church, so generous in service, and yet she is joyless and harsh and critical. And whether that's you or whether that's someone that you know and love, doesn't it? It prompts the question sometimes: is this nut just too hard? for God to crack? Is it impossible? Can God do it? Can He make the change? Because some victories, I think, they do feel impossible. Some promises do seem unrealistic to the point of being unbelievable. Some problems, even after years and years, they seem unsolvable. Perhaps it's patterns in your marriage. Perhaps it's character flaws. Perhaps it's the big ones, actually, you know, the grand, big problems of death and life after death or well, whatever it is for you i'd like to talk about this theme for god's people then back with abraham and now the fear of the lord in the face of the impossible. Now, we're going to have to set the scene because it's been a year since we've been in the life of Abraham. So come back with me now, please. If you've got it in front of you, um, it'll come up on the screen. But uh, if you've got it in front of you, Genesis 17, we need to pick it up from there and just rebuild the life of this man. So God picked Abraham kind of out of nowhere and said, right, you, I'm going to restart with you and God's lavishing these promises and He's even made a covenant by this point, a really formal sort of promise to bless Abraham, He's picked him out, He's started making these commitments to Abraham and so we need to kind of get ourselves back into his life. Genesis 17 verse 15, God also said to Abraham, so this is in one of those encounters between God and Abraham and He says, as for Sarai, your wife you're no longer to call her Sarai, her name will be Sarah, I'll bless her and will surely give you a son by her, I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations, kings of people will come from her. Abraham fell face down, he laughed and said to himself, will a son be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Um, And I'll read that simply to set the scene, okay? This is one of the private appearances of the Lord to Abraham. Um, Note a few things, note the name change from Sarai to Sarah, we'll come back to that. Um, Note the ages of Abraham and Sarah, um, even if somehow these patriarchs had a miraculously stretched out lifespan. In Abraham's view, I'm past it, God. I'm past it. And yet further down, verse 21, God is adamant, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. You're not past it, Abraham, not in my reckoning. And uh, note uh, Abraham's response as well we read this bit before, I won't reread it, Abraham hears, doesn't he? And how does he respond? Do you remember? How does Abraham respond? By going and <laughs> circumcising himself and his sons and everyone in, and his son Ishmael, that's the one not born through Sarah but born through Hagar, you might remember, his slave girl uh, and, and so forth and every male in his household. So, faith in the face of the impossible, well, <laughs> Abraham's a pretty good example of it. But today, I want to pick it up from chapter 18, that's where we're going to mostly pick the story up from, where the Lord, along with these two angels, their identities will become clearer only later as the story progresses, but the Lord appears, yes, to Abraham, but I think Sarah is the focus here and that's where I want to really zero in on uh, today. Read with me from Genesis chapter 18, verse 1, the Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mumre, while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance to his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. Just notice, this is Abraham, at this point in his life, not only old and so worthy of respect in that way, but he is powerful, like he's got quite a vast... Um, household, uh, even to the point of being a bit like an army in, in some instances, this is a... and yet we see him here hurrying, he's rushing, in a moment we're going to see him running and he bows to the ground. What I'm saying is, it's not the done thing for a guy like Abraham to go bowing to just anyone, unless he knows who it is, who his guests are. Verse 3, he, that is Abraham... Abraham said, if I have found favour in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you've come to your servant. See the emphasis there, very well they answered, do as you say. Incidentally, folks, can you think, is there any other time before Jesus, in the Old Testament, is there any other time where the Lord actually eats with His people? That's such a symbol of intimacy, of closeness, of presence. Can you think of another time in the entire Old Testament where that happens? Now, of course, where you have Jesus. Jesus comes eating and drinking with His friends, gathering people into God's presence, this intimacy, and of course, we we reimagine that, don't we, each time that we share the Lord's Supper, there's something so beautiful, and we have the promise of the eternal banquet, But in the Old Testament, wow, Abraham, do you see what I mean? All right, now, uh, I've rushed through that a little bit. Let's pick it up from verse 6. So Abraham hurried to the uh, tent of Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seers of fine flour, that is kilos, kilos and kilos, and knead it and bake some bread. And then he ran to the herd, selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them, while they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Now, we've rushed through that, but that's okay. Believing Abraham, convinced Abraham, humble Abraham, hurrying around Abraham, I am your servant, bowing before the Lord, Abraham. But then Sarah, here she comes, she strikes such a different note here. And I kind of wonder, as we come into verse 9 and following now, do you think Abraham had even told her about the promises that God had spoken concerning her having a son? What do you make of it? Let's read from verse 9. Where is your wife, Sarah, they asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well-advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. And so, Sarah laughed to herself and she thought, after I'm worn out and my master's old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I return? Sorry, will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid and so she lied and said, I didn't laugh, but he said, yes, you did laugh. Sarah's derision, Now uh, this is Derek Kidner, I reckon he's bang on here, her derision suggests that either Abraham hadn't told her of the promise or he'd failed to convince her. But God's rebuke, where he had been gentle with Abraham, rather points to the latter, that is, that Sarah was persisting in unbelief and not merely reacting in astonishment. Folks, I reckon we've got a a feel for Sarah, don't we? So maybe her husband had told her, but verse 11 tells us, do you remember that verse 11, that Sarah was past the age of childbearing and that, that's this little Hebrew phrase there, that the, the ways of women had ceased with her. It's talking about menopause, that's pretty much the definition of impossible. Abraham, it's not going to happen with me. That, that passage in Hebrews that was describing Abraham and Sarah before, it pretty much nails it, doesn't it? For a woman in that culture, how did it describe them? Past age, as good as dead. So, like her husband, she laughed, but as one writer put it, it was melancholy, hopeless and non-believing laughter. She thought of herself as a decrepit old woman married to an old man. Why? Because some things feel impossible. Because, folks, some things are impossible. Some things just plain are and, and maybe it's big things like, you know, life after death or maybe it's little things like, you know, anger or some awful habit or something or maybe it's somewhere in between, the biological clock. It's not death but it sure doesn't feel like life either. Impossible, says Sarah. But, folks, I just wanted us to notice three little features in this text, features which it's true Sarah didn't respond very well to but I think they are there for us who tend to think of certain things as impossible in life. Uh, Number one is in verse 9 actually, just notice how does this stranger who comes to them, these these people out of nowhere, how do they name uh, Abraham's wife? The Lord, this stranger out of nowhere, speaking in chapter 18, verse 9, where is your wife, Sarah? Did you spot that before? The Lord had only just changed her name in the context of making promises about you're going to have a child, your wife is going to bear a son. In other words, it is me, Sarah, the Lord. Uh, And secondly, features number two and three, let's take these together. Firstly, there in verse 12 we read, so Sarah laughed, what does it say? To herself, as she thought, after I'm worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure of of having children? But then put that together with the last little feature, verse 13, then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say? You see that? Sarah laughed to herself and thought, but then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Just these little features, these little tiny details and granted any old guest might have heard her laugh or, or thought, even if she was just laughing to herself, no, I, th- I think I caught her laughing but, but the thought that of what she thought to herself, I wonder if it's just a little cue that was sadly lost on Sarah that, Sarah, I have a power that reaches within you. I know what is going on within you. You who think the ways of of women are finished within you. Sarah, it's me, the Lord speaking. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And yet, sadly, verse 15, Sarah was afraid and so she lied and said, I didn't laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. And we leave the story there with fear. but It's not fear of the Lord, not in the traditional sense anyway. We leave the story with a promise, but not one that's believed and not one that's trusted and taken hold of. It does make me wonder though, whether brothers and sisters, if we kind of know what to do with our doubts sometimes, when we feel a bit more like Sarah than we do a bit more like Abraham... If we know what to do with our our feelings and our fears in our life together, whether we know how to talk about them. I wonder if we kind of fear talking about our doubts and our fears sometimes because we think others don't have them, Uh, we think we're the anomaly in the people of God or because we don't want to upset their faith. The trouble is that it means that we never get to minister to one another's doubts and fears, we never get to learn the lessons together. We never get to share in the solutions, if I can put it that way, it's this catch 22. But I wonder if this might surprise us. So this is um, a little paragraph from a bloke called Charles Scobie uh, and he's looked at faith right across the Bible and he makes this interesting conclusion. So this is Charles Scobie, he says, while the Old Testament calls on people to trust in God, and to love and obey Him, okay? Trust and love and obey God, yep. While the Old Testament calls on us to do that, it also has a lot to say about doubt and despair, he says. In point of fact, questioning God has a major place in the Old Testament. It is certainly found in the individual laments of the Psalms, in which the the writer frequently calls out in doubt and despair, It's also found in the prophets. Can you think of some of them? Even the stalwart Elijah is revealed as a man not immune from depression and doubt of God's purposes. The prophet Jeremiah bears his soul and reveals the inner struggle and anguish endured as he tackled what often seemed a hopeless task. (laughs) Then he talks about Jeremiah's poems. There's a bunch of them through uh, Jeremiah Lamentations. His six poems seem to mirror a growing doubt and despair, culminating in the accusation that God has deceived him and then cursing of the day he was born. Yet even in the midst of this, there is embedded an expression of confidence in God. Can you think of other examples of doubters across the Bible? Ecclesiastes, meaningless, meaningless. Job, oh gosh, that's heart stuff, isn't it? All I'm saying is, look, of course, doubts and fears, they are not our aim, of course they're not. But suppressing them need not and should not and historically has not been the way for God's people. We express them, we talk about them, we share them and we point one another to the God who is indeed faithful in tenderness. Uh, And as we come to the New Testament now, and to the great, 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 great grandson, the great descendant of Sarah and Abraham through Isaac, I think we're shown just how to speak to the Sarah within us and the Sarah among us. Uh, So would you please turn with me now to, actually not the Hebrews 11 passage, uh, but to Ephesians chapter 1. Would you please turn that up if you're following along in the Bible, Ephesians chapter 1, I'd like to look from verse 15 and uh, it's that prayer that Paul makes for the Ephesians that I alluded to in my opening prayer, uh, granted there is far too much in there for us to unpack um, in one sermon, it's, it's it's many, many sermons worth of work there but I would just like to highlight three things, three things as we come to it, three things that Paul prays for the Ephesians in their maturity as Christians and that I hope will be a help to us. He wants them to know a few things, He wants them to know their hope, that's future looking, isn't it? He wants them to know their great inheritance, again, future looking, hope and inheritance, future looking but also things that sometimes can seem far off, can seem impossible, can seem out of reach, God can you even, is that too hard for you? Uh, And he wants them to know, and this is the one I want to concentrate on, God's power for us who believe. So take a look there with me from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. We'll read this prayer. For this reason, writes Paul, uh, the reason being God's eternal plan of salvation for His people through Christ, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints... I haven't stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Now, what does he want them to know? Verse 18, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints and His incomparably great power for us who believe. Now, here's the important thing, O Christian, whether your fears are the big impossible things of life after death, the hope and great inheritance uh, that we have coming for us, or whether it's the, the small things. What is the Power that overcomes the impossible obstacles, whether for us uh, or in the bigger scheme in, in God's design. Verse 20, have a look here. What is this power? So, the end of verse 19, uh, that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in the present age but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under His, Christ's feet and appointed Him to be head over everything for the Church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. Christian, what we've got to remember as we face the impossible or seemingly impossible in life... Is the power of God at work for us, amongst us, and even beyond us? Christian, we don't just look to Jesus because he can forgive us when we fail at doing what feels impossible. Brothers and sisters, we don't just plead with Jesus because he understands us as we confront what feels impossible or daunting uh, or stretching. No, brothers and sisters, we go to Jesus because He has the power to change us, to grant us all that God has in store for us. What this passage is saying is that the power of God at work in believers isn't somehow different from the power that raised Christ from the dead. Did you see that? verse 19, his' incomparably great power for us who believe that power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when He raised him from the dead. We haven't in our Christian lives, we haven't got the dead batteries because Jesus used all the good ones raising Jesus from the dead. We haven't got the Dicky Power board because Jesus used the good one in, 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 in having Jesus defeat sin and death on the cross. Now, I'm not promising that you will have victory here and now over every single sin in your life, but I want us to see that we call on a God who has power to defeat sin, power to defeat death. He's done it before and He exerts the same power in our lives. And Paul wants us to know that along with our hope, along with our inheritance. The fear of the Lord means that we can face the impossible, Christian. John Stott put it like this, he said, if there are two powers which man cannot control, but which hold him in bondage, they are death and evil. Man is mortal, he cannot avoid death. Man is fallen, he cannot overcome evil. But God in Christ has conquered both and therefore can rescue us from both. To conclude have you guys heard of Bob Coughlin? Bob Coughlin? He's, um, You might see his name just in the footnotes of our songs sometimes. So, he's a, he's a songwriter from Louisville in Kentucky from a church called Sovereign Grace and so you might have seen his name, Bob Coughlin, or you might have seen Sovereign Grace and it seems to me from having looked through that pretty much every song that's come out of Sovereign Grace recently has had him somehow involved. So, he's that, that kind of a guy. Anyway, I tend to think of songwriters as perpetually happy, kick and goals kind of people. Anyway, he went through an awful period, years actually, three years, which he described with words like hopelessness, characterised by depression, panic attacks and itching. Um, And as the story goes, he, uh, Coughlin, he confessed his hopelessness to a pastor, who was obviously a pastor who was close enough to him to have this conversation, but anyway, he confessed this hopelessness to a pastor who, to his great surprise, said, I don't think you're hopeless enough. Coughlin thought he was joking. The pastor explained, if you were completely hopeless, you'd stop trusting in what you think you can do to change the situation and start trusting in what Jesus Christ has already done for you at the cross. And Coughlin said it was like a light came on. He felt that he was facing the impossible and that it was too much. He didn't have the power to overcome it. But then he realized thanks to this pastor that he, Bob Coughlin was not Bob Coughlin's hope. His hope was not in his own power. What was possible in his life was not to be defined by what he could muster up for himself. He says he learned to say to himself, I am a hopeless person, but Jesus Christ died for hopeless people. Can we pray together? Father God in heaven, so very often in life, we're bolstered by encouragements that will make it, That we've got what it takes, that we can do it and yet that advice, it rings so hollow, so often and then we are plunged into disappointment or a bit of sadness or at least some self-reflection. But Father, in the Gospel we're reminded that nothing is too hard for our Lord, that You can do the impossible, just as You did in the life of Sarah, so even greater you did in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is your power, Father, that's at work amongst us. Father, that gives us a sober picture of ourselves, but it gives us a great image of you. And we pray, Father, that you would be the one that we'd lean on when things seem impossible, whether big things or small things, whether we're facing death or whether we're facing actually something much smaller but which still seems beyond us. Father, may You be our strength, not just because You're powerful but because by Your grace we have learned to lean on You. More than that, Father, we ask, would You please help us to be a community of Your people who help one another lean on Your grace? Uh, We pray, Father, that You'd cultivate within us a real boldness with one another to talk of our doubts and our fears Uh, and to allow each other to minister one to another that we might grow, not just in a knowledge of Jesus with our heads, but with our hearts as well. And so may we bear you glory in all things. For Christ's sake, Amen.